Well, um, Provost, Madam President, distinguished guests, ladies and gentlemen, you're all very welcome uh, to this delightful little printing hall. And having welcomed you, I have to show you how to get out. Uh, <laughs> there, are, there are two, health and safety required this, there are two exits to this building. I feel like an air stewardess here. Uh, you don't look like One a behind <laughs> you, once upon a time. Uh, uh, one behind you there, and one here to my left. Um, and uh, if any of the speakers annoy you, feel free to use the one at the uh, end. Um, anyway, I'm Kieran Brady, and it is my great pleasure and my great honour to chair uh, the first of what is really two events uh, we've organised to mark uh, the publication of Trinity in War and Revolution, a book commissioned as one of Trinity's contributions to the decade of commemoration. Later on, that is to say, after 7.30, the book will be formally launched by Chief Justice Mrs. Susan Denham uh, at the Provost's House, and you were all cordially invited to that launch. Cordial is a hint, because I am assured that refreshments will be supplied. Uh, uh, and in case any of you are unsure of how to get there or nervous about crossing Front Square in the dark, uh, we have gathered together a squad of uh, scouts, of uh, volunteers from Trinity's undergraduate societies and clubs who will be waiting at the back of the hall uh, to help you find your way. Um, but in the first of this evening's events, we want to move beyond uh, Trinity and its associations with the war and with the rising, and instead uh, to stimulate discussion on what are the most important themes and topics of the period as a whole and in particular to inquire as to how research and interpretation on this period has developed since the last great occasion of celebration some 50 years ago. And to help us in doing this, we've invited a panel of true experts drawn, I have to say, not only from within, but from outside Trinity College to lead our discussion. I want now, uh, sincerely, to thank all of our panellists for agreeing to appear. Uh, they are in strict alphabetical order. Uh, Katrina Clear, who is Senior Lecturer in Modern Irish History at NUI Galway. Katrina Crow, who is Head of the Special Projects at the National Archives of Ireland. Anne Dolan, who is an Associate Professor in Modern Irish History here at Trinity College. Ronan Fanning, who is Professor Emeritus of Modern History at University College Dublin. Tomás Irish, the author of the book that will be launched later, uh, who is lecturer in history at Swansea University, and Eunan O'Halpin, who is Bank of Ireland Professor of Contemporary Irish History at Trinity College Dublin. Eunan, true to his form, has to teach uh, later this evening uh, on an extramural course. The teaching never stops here in Trinity. So for that reason, and to reward you, Eunan, um, I'm going to start with you first and ask, what, in your opinion, do you think are the most important uh, developments in research and interpretation that have happened since 1966? Well, in some ways, I, I think that you could go, go, go back to Kevin B. Nolan's collection of essays on, on the rise and come out, and I think, in 1968 or whatever, the one that he edited, which I think stakes out the ground uh, for, 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 for research going forward rather than a sort of a sentimental looking back. I think that since then there's been enormous changes in the environment in which, in which historians work uh, be, because of the absolute 
the change from, from no records to, to an absolute deluge of records pertaining to the Irish Revolution generally. Uh, that's the case in Britain because of the Public Records Office of 19, Record Act of 1967, and in Ireland uh, with the, uh, the, the, the uh, implementation of the National Archives Act of 1986, uh, and with very important developments in the last dozen years or so, particularly the Bureau of Military History, Military Service Pension Records, and the gradual and still insufficient uh, 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 tendency of people finally to look in their attics or whatever and to take out collections and to give even 1% of them uh, to, to archives and so on for other people uh, to explore and to use. And one of the tragedies of, of uh, for any historian working in this area is sometimes where you will get a glimpse of something belonging to somebody's grandmother or whatever, sometimes a diary, sometimes an important collection of papers. And Certainly 70% of the time, even when you're consulted, the material never reaches an archive. It gets distributed amongst the family, it gets put back in the attic, it gets lost, somebody dies, and so on. So there's a challenge for all of us to, to become more effective harvesters uh, of, of records. In terms of uh, the historiography, I, I think there have been some outstanding books in the Irish Revolution, not all of them of that recent, recent vintage. The one that Mark struck me most then and, and still today in some ways is Charles Townsend's British Campaign in Ireland, 1919-1921, which is an amazing piece of work, working, working with the, the first systematic work through British records, first released in 1967. Uh, I think that we, in Ireland we shouldn't forget, uh, in particular, the prodigious work done on, on, on the early 1900s and on 1916 itself by the late Lola Brin. Lola Brin combined his time as Secretary of the Department of Posts and Telegraphs and this may explain something about Post and Telegraphs uh, in the era, <laughs> but with, with working in a sense part-time as, as a researcher. And, and given that he, he uh, until he retired, had very little time, it's absolutely remarkable the amount, amount of work that he produced and researched work uh, on 19th, 20th century Irish history. And his book on Dublin Castle and the 1916 Rising, which I drew on a lot when I was doing my MA and my first book on, on of the Union British Government in Ireland, 1891 to 1920. I, I in some ways, borrowed shamelessly uh, from what O'Brien had done and, and followed in his footsteps. I probably found more material because there's more material available, but O'Brien did an amazing amount. And so the argument, for instance, arguments about revisionism and so on, that these are sort of uh, recent inventions that people uh, interrogating the past critically, that they only do it if they come from Trinity or that they only do it uh, if they don't come from Cork, uh, are, are beside the point. The point is that from very early on, the late Maureen Wall of UCD wrote a very important uh, analysis, I think in the Kevin B. Nolan book. There have all, historians have always been, Irish historians and historians of Ireland have, have always been interrogating, as it were, what's held to be the standard national or nationalist narrative of the Irish Revolutionary Era. It's not, it's not anything new, and it's not anything that's going to stop, and nor should it. And, and I think I should stop you before you hoover up all the interesting <laughs> topics. This is going to get a harder question as we go along the panel, and this is a chairman's right to choose who gets it easier and who doesn't. Katrina, you're beside me. What's your view? Okay, well, I'd, I'd like to echo what Yunan said about the... Uh, availability of new sources. Of course, that's the area I work in, in the National Archives. The most significant thing we've done uh, in terms of making sources available is to put them online free of charge. And that is hugely important, starting with the 1901 and 1911 census, which are the basic demographic data for this entire decade. 
It's a great pity that the Central Statistics Office does not see its way to allowing us to have the 1926 census a little bit early. But they seem to be adamant in their um, conviction that that would be a very wrong thing to do. Those of you who have influence, please try to bring it to bear on them so we can see it a little bit earlier. It's the next census that we have after 1911, and the comparison between the two of them will have a very interesting story to tell us about changes that happened during this turbulent decade. The Bureau of Military History, I suppose, is the big one because uh, I don't know of anywhere else in the world that has an oral history of its revolutionary period. Um, it was carried out in the late 40s, early 50s, uh, overseen by Eamon de Valera, who really wanted to do it, and who ironically never made a statement of his own. He kept saying that he would, but then held back and didn't, and there are all kinds of interesting speculations as to why that might be the case. But what you have are 1,770 statements, 35,000 pages of typescript, people ranging from ordinary volunteers up to the, the highest level in the various organizations that were active at the time. Um, it is an unparalleled story. The accounts are later than we would like them to be, I guess, in terms of the period that they're describing, but it's nonetheless an extraordinary source that has transformed the study of the period. And it shouldn't be forgotten that that's only half the collection. The other half is a very serious collection of contemporary documents, which were handed into the Bureau in the 50s uh, when the statements were being taken, and which are available to be seen in the military archives in Colbrough Barracks. And you can find the indexes to those contemporary documents online, also on the website. The next big tranche of stuff that came after that was the military service pensions files. And they were kept closed for a very long time. They were almost destroyed about three times. They have moved about three or four times in their, their lives. And there are various heroic people, especially Captain Peter Young, who used to be the uh, archivist in the, the military archives, who made sure that they survived. 285,000 files, people claiming uh, pensions for active service between 1916 and 1923. And of course, that changes over the years after the decade in terms of who's eligible to get what. Common Amon didn't get anything until 1934. Neither did people who were active in the uh, anti-treaty forces. Again, these are an interesting source because most of them are much closer in time to the events that they're describing. So they're, and they're very, they have a very high standard of verification. Anything that somebody said had to be verified uh, by three other people. So we're looking at a very high standard of, of accuracy uh, as far as it goes. Of course, it's going to highlight the history of the Chancellor in the decade of revolutionaries too, because there will be people who claim for pensions who have no earthly right to them. But that in itself is part of our expanding historiography of the revolutionary <laughs> period. There were many Chancellors about as there are today. That's the way it goes. <laughs> Um, Is that true, Katrina? Um, yeah. that this opens up a, a whole um, vista of a new way of approaching Irish social history on a very personal basis. Is that your experience of using these new materials? Um, yeah, I think there's this quite a lot in about uh, um, there's quite a lot in it about women in particular as well that that were, was hasn't thanks thankfully been overlooked since the early 1980s, but was up to then. Uh, there was. Um, Interestingly enough, recently in the, in the November issue of the It magazine, or the Irish Tatler, there was a full-length article. Why are they laughing? What's funny about magazines? Um, is, it, is it a peer-reviewed journal, he wants to know? It's not. This is the point I want to make. Oh, yes, there was a three-page three article about women in Irish, women in Irish political history. 
and it was all about the kind of research, it embodied all the research that's been done since the mid-late 70s on Irish women, and there wasn't one historian's name mentioned in it. And first I thought, oh God, this is terrible, and I thought, no, this is great, this has become part of the story now, the story that everybody knows, just as we all know about 1916. And it's all thanks to the work of people like Margaret Ward, um, Unmanageable Revolutionaries, 1982, Rosemary Cullen Owens, 1985, because if you go back to 1966, the actual year of the revolution, of the, sorry, the commemoration of the revolution, the year when um, there was the, the 50th anniversary, Woman's Way ran an article on uh, women in the revolution written by Maura Comerford, who was a veteran, and it was a, four, a really good four-page article. And it was, it was it, interesting enough, it was headlined Carved Their Names in Pride, which was a direct reference to the book about Violet yes. Sabo. Yeah. And it was very much stressing the daring and the, 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 the sort of the, the, the bravery and the courage of these women, defying convention as well as risking their lives and their jobs. So since Ward and Colin Owens in the early 80s, an awful lot more has come out. Anne Matthews, um, Senia Peseta, Roy Foster's most recent book is, is, is quite interesting about the relationship between men and women as well. And the military archives have an awful lot as well about women and coming them on. And the way women sort of negotiated, you know, their, 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 their personal lives and their, their public lives. And, and the way they thought of themselves very pragmatically as revolutionaries. Not with any, not with any special pleading or, or apology or anything like that, you know. A pointed question, Professor Fanning. Do you agree? Uh, well, I'd take a rather different... I mean, I, I'll go back to your original question. Difference between... 1966 and today. And I think the attitudes in 1966, given, I agree with what Eunan says about historians always being ready to challenge the nationalist interpretation, but nevertheless there was a kind of uneasy sort of quasi-reverential approach still in 1966. Nobody was prepared to be too overtly critical. Today, um, I think from that kind of stance, we've turned to a position where an awful lot of historians, the younger generation in particular, in my judgment, are extraordinarily antipathetic to 1916 and everything it stood for. Uh, I remember once being very impressed at an international congress of historians in San Francisco in 1975. I was giving a paper on the, the revolutionary the Irish Revolution. And I remember at a quite different kind of session hearing a German historian say it is the responsibility of the historian to give to each past the open future it once had. Now I think today's generation of historians have completely lost sight, very many of them, completely lost sight of that. And they're following a kind of what I think of as a neoliberal agenda. What they don't like about 1916 is really what they don't like about the state today. Uh, and that's fine. I have no objection. I share much of their distaste for lots of things that happened over the last 100 years, especially the stranglehold that the Catholic Church held uh, for so long. But that is not, it seems to me, an appropriate position from which to try to understand 19, I mean, basically what an awful lot of them seem to be complaining about, in, in, in my own case I've just written a biography of De Valera and it comes out very pointedly there, is not what he did, but what he didn't do. That he wasn't a neoliberal in 1916. And that is 
not just grossly ahistorical, it's grossly anti-historical. Oh, Ronan, you've made my task as chair so much easier uh, because uh, remaining panellists here are, I think, representatives of the younger generations of scholars. <laughs> and all I have to do is say, well, Anne, what do you think of that? Thanks, Sarah. <laughs> um, I feel like I'm back in my tutorial in TD in about 1996. Um, I think in a way, I, I'm not going to defend historians who do that, no matter what generation they're of. They, they're not really historians, if, if, if that's what they're up to. Um, what I think has happened in some ways is, is a, a very clear finding of the First World War and a very clear finding of the relationship between 1916 and the First World War, which is maybe something that wasn't there quite as obviously in 1966. I think we have to thank people like Keith Jeffrey for that um, in particular. Um, I think maybe more broadly, there's the influence of, I think, shifts in wider historiography, shifts in the history of warfare more generally, the sense in which I think that's contributed to our interest, not just in the great men, the great women, the heroes, the obvious people of 1916 who would have been fated in 1966. We are, as Katrina said, much more interested in the ordinary experience, whether it's of the ordinary volunteer and you know the ordinary competent of whatever side, but equally I think the experience of just ordinary people who are trying to get on with their lives through all of these events um, and it's very striking, I think, in, in the last couple of decades, possibly the influence of things like genealogy and the public expectation of what it is we do at the past that has led people to try and find their way into history through the experience of their relatives. I think, in a way, that has had a huge effect on the public engagement with the kind of work that I think a lot of historians are, are now actually doing. I think, in a way, as well, we're much better at communicating, maybe, with the public. We're much more aware of our duties to communicate with the public. Um, but I think quite strikingly, it is that new relationship with the First World War um, in particular. And I think as well, there's the other, the other issue that now we are 100 years away, or nearly 100 years away. In 1966, there were still enough veterans around to still have a stake in this. And in a way, there's, there's, I think this makes the whole period much more malleable for the kind of problematic interpretations that I think Ronan was talking about, that it makes it so much easier for us to say and do what we want with this past as opposed to have to actually deal and confront veterans who for many, many different reasons can be quite awkward when they want. They own the past in a way that we don't. And I think we don't have to negotiate that awkwardness anymore. So that that's freezes up to... Except with the relatives of the relatives the of the relatives. The relatives of the relatives. Yeah. And there's a strange, almost monarchical type of, of uh, attitude within, the, if you like, the, the families of what were ultimately, in the, you know, should we call themselves Republicans. But they approach this, this period with a very sort of uh, monarchical attitude. But no, I, I mean, I'm not going to defend, I mean, I'll leave it to Tomas, I don't think I'm young enough anymore to call <laughs> <laughs> uh, right. know, I, I, I think, you know, that, that's, that's just not very good history. Tomas, it is left over to you. Um, how would you say your own research, um, which begun not simply about Trinity College, but with the role of universities in the Great War itself, how does that fit into this paradigm? I suppose, well, Anne sort of stole most of the ideas or things I'm going to say, but in general, I think the First World War is kind of the, the point I wanted to make, and just the role, the, the extent to which the First World War is sort of being taken, I guess, as a given in many respects in, as a part of the, art, the historiography of the period in Ireland in ways that I, and I just think it wasn't in previous um, decades. And to tap into what Yunan was saying, a lot of it comes down to things like source material. And you, I'm just really struck by events that have been held the last couple of years where people, you know, crowdsourcing archival collections and people bringing in the records of their you know, grandparents, great-grandparents from the war 
and just seeing the extent of Irish involvement in the First World War and the sort of public enthusiasm for exploring this involvement in the First World War, I think is really striking. Um, historiographically, as Anne mentioned, it taps into work of Keith Jeffrey, David Fitzpatrick as well, I think, who's kind of very influential in um, advancing that um, back in the 80s. And I think since there's been a sort of reawakening in interest in the Irish experience of the First World War, people are becoming more aware of just how sort of omnipresent and ubiquitous traces of the First World War are. I mean, everywhere we look in towns, in institutions, and so on. And I think and the, I'm just really struck by the public enthusiasm in events organized by uh, you know, local libraries, county councils, and so on, history societies, in exploring the local experience of the war, relating to the, the wider national experience of war and also revolution. The other point I wanted to make was just about, um, in terms of 1916 and, <clears throat> and the Irish Revolution, I think is uh, in historiography, the increasing move towards finding comparisons and comparative dimensions in understanding what happened in Ireland, both in terms of Project Anne was involved in, about paramilitary violence after the First World War and drawing comparisons across Europe to see what made it different or what ways Ireland was similar or different to other experiences. Um, but also things like putting 1916 in this global context, which I think is becoming an increasing drive. Um, Keith Jeffrey just published a book on that topic. Um, so I think there's a few different sort of trends relating to the First World War that I would be particularly struck by. I get the sense sometimes, uh, but, but that's from reading certain journalists in the Irish Times, I suspect, that, um, that, um, that the, the replacement of emphasis from the rising and the rebellion, which was so central in the 1960s, to the war is a movement that may have reached its peak. Uh, I mean, it's true, people have you know, mentioned David Fitzpatrick uh, and, uh, and, as I say, a certain Irish Times journalist, um, who's no friend of Trinity's, um, who began this a long, long time ago. And, and there are people who have suggested uh, that maybe this is a movement that has gone far enough and we should once again be thinking uh, backwardly or moving the pendulum back in the opposite direction to consider the distinctiveness of what happened in, in Ireland in 1916. What's your view, Ron? Uh, I think it's an awful lot of this has to do with the, the, the people are more comfortable with the First World War than they are in 1916, partly because it's politically correct. You can say it embraces all traditions. I took part in a very interesting discussion, I remember, at Kells Book Festival last year with Geoffrey Donaldson uh, about the significance of the psalm and the significance of, of 1916. And I argued then, and I would continue to argue, that in terms of state formation, the psalm is nowhere near as significant as in 1916. And if the Ulster Unionists really wanted to commemorate an event which had much more to do with the Ulster Unionists achieving the right to which I believe they were perfectly entitled and which they were for so long denied by the nationalists, to self-determination on their own account, what they should be commemorating are things like the founding of the Ulster Volunteer Force, and the Lauren gun running, and the establishment of a provisional government in Northern Ireland. The Somme was obviously a horrendous experience, a scarring experience, and is worth commemorating, and more than worth commemorating, in that context. But it doesn't have anything to do with establishing 
the circumstances under which Northern Ireland was established. And I think this is, the, this is one of the reasons why I think the pendulum has swung too far. Everybody's so busy these days taking into account the feelings of unionists, the feeling of nationalists, the feeling of that group, the feeling of another group, treating everybody with what Mr. Adams once infamously or famously described as parity of esteem. Uh, and and that, the, the, this passion for parity of esteem and parity of recognition means that I think 1916 continues to make a lot of historians. And incidentally, Tomás Irish's book, which I read, um, reread, I should say, over the, the weekend, I don't think it bears any of the traces which I was speaking about, none whatever. <laughs> uh, so I'd like to, to, to make that clear. But I think what it is about 1916, you see, there is, there's a particularity about 1916. It is particular, it is peculiar to Irish circumstances, to the circumstances which led to the foundation of the Irish state. And that's what makes many people, many historians, and many, many, many would-be, so-be, so-called pundits, uh, uncomfortable in 1960. Katrina, how would you... Uh What's your view on the place of the pendulum, as it were? I, I don't know. I mean, I personally, I love 1916 because one of my earliest memories is watching Insurrection on the television, you know, the, the, the play that was brought out in 1966. And I, I'm quite sentimental about 1916 for all kinds of reasons. And the more I read about it, the more interested I am in it. I agree with, with Ronan that it's, it's particular to Ireland as well. Interestingly, and, and I, 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 I was talking to somebody recently who thought that the commemoration of the First World War had gone far enough and said Gallipoli and already I'm sick of it kind of thing, you know, which is horrible really, you know, because after all we have to commemorate these things, but it, you just see an awful lot of it in, in, in the newspapers and it does unify, I suppose, us between, between ourselves and, and the other Anglophone sources, British and that. But um, for people of my parents' generation, and I was only talking to a man last week at a conference in Limerick, uh, who was a train driver all his life and found a vocational historian then and did a PhD. And he gave a very good paper on, a man called Tyg Maloney, he gave a very good paper on the letters. Uh, one of the archives Ronan was talking about, the letters that a soldier from Fermoy from, from, from wrote from the front to his sister, a man in his 30s. Uh, and I was talking to him afterwards, a very good paper. I was talking to him afterwards and he said, you know, and he, he's in his 80s, I suppose, this man. And he said um, his father was in the First World War and his uncle was in the First World War. And he said, we weren't allowed to talk about it for years at Real Limerick. We weren't allowed, we, we didn't know anything about it, you know, and it's only in the last... So there has to have been, you know, we have to recognise that the experience of fighting in the First World War was probably... There were probably a lot more people involved in it. We know there were than there were fighting in 1916. And I suppose this man... You know, we think as historians that it's, it's kind of old hat at this stage we're talking about the First World War. But for people in their um, 70s, you know, some people in their 80s who are coming late to history, this is a, still the, they're still at the discovery phase of it, you know, and he feels that respect is being given back to his father and his uncles and so on. And, you know, so that's, that's important too. I suppose pendulums will swing all the yeah, time. Yeah. I think we have to give 1916 its due. And I, I want to give 1916 its due. The, the yeah. su suggestion seems to be, in the, in the places that I've picked it up, uh, that uh, there's an ideology behind, a contemporary ideology behind the move away from celebrating the rising to placing it in context with the First World War. Uh, do you think there's an ideological move in 
trying to move the emphasis back to Easter again, Katrina. To 1916, yeah. Easter 1916. Yeah. <clears throat> well, the state is certainly doing its damnedest to make that happen. I mean, there's a gigantic program of activities and publications and events and great local involvement all over the country. Um, Ronan expresses fears about neoliberal young historians. My fear is that there's a hell of a lot of hagiography out there. And I've seen quite a few books by young historians that have scared the hell out of me because of their inability to interrogate sources and people who came to us wrapped like flies in amber when I was a kid, that we were supposed to uncritically admire and adore, and one did. I grew up thinking that Porrick Pierce and James Connolly were the two greatest people who ever lived on the earth. My mind has changed slightly about that since, and it would be really wrong if it hadn't, you know. Um, I think setting the rising in the context of World War I is not just interesting but essential. I think giving everyone the right to look at primary sources so they can make up their own minds about what happened is not just interesting but essential. I think the plethora of really good books, including Professor Fanning's own book, which has been a very useful beginning to this decade of centenaries, we got it just in time to remind us of the, uh, the whole home rule debate at a, at a time before it was overshadowed by other things. We're moving on a trajectory very quickly through this decade. The state has determined that 1916 is the absolute dead center of it, probably rightly. That may be the, the, the way to approach it. But there are a lot of other things going on too, and there are going to be a lot of other things going on too that may not be so focused. I doubt very much if we're going to have major celebrations around the Civil War. And yet, the Civil War is an event that requires us to interrogate, explore, and understand it, perhaps more than any other single thing that happened in the 20th century in Ireland. Um, I think it's going to be left well alone. Uh, I hope that historians, as they always do, will rise to the challenge and produce new and interesting work on what went on. But no, I think, I don't think the pendulum has, has, has I mean, a lot of people, including myself, often say these days, because we're exhausted by the amount of work we have to do around 1916, why didn't they just stay in bed on Easter Monday like normal people? <laughs> now, I don't really mean that, but it, it can be a feeling you would get, you know. This is getting overwhelming. Um, and it is important, hugely important, but I'm afraid that we could slide very quickly back into a form of uncritical hagiography that won't do anybody any good. And pendulums? Um, I echo what Katrina says in terms of I'm a historian of the Civil War and I'm worried the pendulum will just have stopped still by the time we get to May of next year and no one will have any effort or, or energy left to do anything about what comes after. I mean, we should bear in mind what happened as it was to the scholarship of 1798 after all the jamboree of 1998. Very few students attracted to study in that field because they felt so much had already been said already in 1998. I mean, I think, you know, in a way, I'm, I would echo again, Katrina, it's, as you said, Kieran, it's getting to the stage where we're just repeating each other, but I am worried by the hagiography, partly because... You know, it's we are in a situation where I think a lot of the students I'm teaching today they don't remember the troubles, and I think that has that is an issue. That is a very big issue, um, and there is this, this, the the political, if you like, expediency of finding, as Ronan hinted, this idea of a shared history, which in a way is is all very well in the in the in a political context. Politicians are entitled to do what they wish with the past, as they do with every other topic or or, or issue, but in a way, historians have to. To, to try at least to stand slightly back from that and maintain our, if you like, the integrity of, of the records that we work with. I mean, I would, you know, I, I, I do worry about ideological um, moves behind some of this. Um, 
we are seeing, as Katrina said, books about the great men coming out again and again and again. We could be back in 1966 in some ways, the proclamation, the idea, wasn't there, of the proclamation going into the schools? Yes. The These were things that were done in 1966. It's almost as if we have no imagination yeah. as to how yeah. to do this, this in any different yeah. way. We're defaulting to very traditional modes of commemoration. Yeah. I mean, I'd worry it's very striking when you look at the way the First World War has been handled since 2014. It's in a very mournful, respectful kind of way, linked obviously to the points Katrina's making about the psalm and, and, and the great loss of life. But what we are seeing about 16 is, is a much more celebratory air to it. Mm. And in a way, do we need to look at that a little bit more? Yeah. And that this is seen as something to celebrate, whereas the other is seen as something to mourn, this, this you know, great swathe of young men lost yeah. to this, this war that just takes them away. And yeah. in a way, turns them into sort of quite blank canvases, if you like, and, and forgets what they were actually doing the moment before they were killed. They too were taking part in this. So well, it, it simplifies both events, I think. Tomás, you raised this issue in your last comment on you know, the war being more significant, but the book is entitled uh, War and Revolution. To what extent do you think the events in Ireland between 1916 and 1922 were revolution? Prepared for that question. <laughs> German's prerogative. <laughs> well, I, I really did want to echo the point that Ronan made earlier um, about the First World War, and Anne sort of picked up on it about just the, the politicization of, of history and using, you know, the, the First World War in a sense provides an opportunity for a political consensus, and it's an easy one at that uh, in a way that something like 1916 sort of doesn't in many respects. And I mean, in both cases, I don't, I, I don't like the binary distinction between, you know, the idea of a pendulum even. Mm -hmm. That's not really how we should be approaching history um, as such. Um, we should be, I think, approaching both 1916 and the First World War open to the contingency of, of events as they unfolded and, and as a contemporaries experience them. And I think that being the case, you know, seeing them as, you know, by definition, interlinked, interconnected, um, and not using this binary sort of, sort of either or kind of approach. But you're a politician now, um, because <laughs> the question really concerned revolution. What do you think? Did Ireland experience, experience revolution? Yeah, would you ca classify it as that? I, I think it was a revolution in the sense that it brought about um, a change of government in, in, and the, the political sort of infrastructures. It was revolutionary. And I think the change between 1916 and 20 to fits that definition, broadly speaking. I people experienced it in many respects and wrote about it in those terms. So um, I would say yes. Okay, thank you for that. Uh, now, I'm, I'm, I hope you will want to ask some questions of this group, and I would, on that basis of trust, uh, leave some time at the end of this de uh, panel discussion for questions. Do not let me down on that. Uh, but, but in order to hasten that question and answer session, let me just ask the panel for, for a fairly brief um, uh, response to the question. We've been talking about how things have changed uh, in, the in terms of interpretation and research in the 50 years since 1966. Where do you hope and where do you think um, research interests uh, and following from that interpretative tendencies will go, I won't ask for 50 years, no historian worth his salt would suggest that, but say in the next five to ten years, Katrina. Well, I hope that what we're going to do is develop uh, trauma studies. I think one of the things that, that gets left out uh, a lot in these discussions about this decade is the people who died. And I don't just mean the combatants, I mean the usual majority who die in these situations who are 
uh, bystanders, civilians, and so on. We know a lot more about them now than we did, but they tend to be collateral damage in terms of historical investigation. Um, we tend to focus on the combatants, the ideologues, the people who fought for king and country or fought for whatever. Um, I think that, that what happened here between 1916 and 1923 had very far-reaching consequences for families and for individuals that we have not come to terms with yet. We don't really have uh, trauma studies established in this country yet. It is in other European countries far more. One of the reasons may be that we were lucky enough to escape World War II. And this part of this country has lived in relative peace since 1923. Uh, the North didn't, of course, and, and the effects of that are there to behold as well in terms of ongoing trauma and difficulty. Uh, one of the, the, the routes into this may well be Euron O'Halpin's fantastic magnum opus, which Anne Dolan has played a huge part in, The Dead of the Irish Revolution, which is an attempt to capture the names and biographies of everybody who died on the nationalist side, at any rate, uh, or as a result of that, during the years between 1916 and 21, and that is uh, 23. First of of that hopefully will come out next year. It will be The Lost Lives, David McKittrick's beautiful book for Northern Ireland for this decade. We need to look at that. We need to think about people who didn't want to die for Ireland or for Britain or for anybody who just wanted to get on with their lives and happened to get lost in the middle of all Very of this. Very interesting response. Katrina, can I ask you for uh, yeah, I suppose crystal ball gazing? Um, I would like to see more attention paid to everyday life, which kind of fits in with that with what Katrina is the other Katrina is saying there as well, because of course bereavement is part of everyday life. But I am interested in how life went on when the revolution was happening. And a few years ago, TJ Cahar had a documentary, and I watched it because I knew one of the people who was acting in it. But they, it was a docudrama about, of all things, a weeping statue in Tipperary in 1920. And this, this caused a big sensation, a statue of Our Lady that was seen to weep. There were people came from, there were, there were, co there were sharabanks came from Dublin, there were special trains laid on. There were all sorts of, um, this went on for a, a, a few months and the boy who saw, and then eventually it was tied in with politics because Michael Collins um, had to uh, take aside the person who was involved in it who said, who said he was seeing the statue weeping and to try and make out that it was a fraud. Anyway, long story. But the point is that all of this was going on while there was still a war going on in the country. Mm. You know, that everyday life continued and people continued to, uh, I suppose, drop everything and go where there was a bit of a sensation going on. It wouldn't, one would have thought that everyday life was exciting enough with the War of Independence, obviously not. Um, yeah, I'm kind of interested in what people wore, what right. they what they what they ate, what they died of, what they recovered from. Uh, a little bit more about that as well in those years, as well okay. as the bereavement and the trauma. Quick answer, Tomas, any views on where we'll be? Well, I, I gotta repeat what's been said. I just think again, yeah, looking at things like ordinary lives and not I suppose projecting this idea that the sort of big political events just by definition shape how people live their lives. Of course they do they inform it to an extent, but people still have very diverse interests and, and the lives that they lead in different ways. And I think it'd be interesting just to think more critically about you know, what, how people lived. Uh, something I was struck by in sort of writing the book in question, just looking at how students behave in the 20s in Trinity. Sure, some of them are concerned with what the big political changes mean for them. And some of them just want to play sport and go drinking and carouse <laughs> and do what students do. And I think in th that sort of emphasis on ordinary lives is really important, just thinking more about the extent to which um, you know, we can't just define societies, communities, just by big political ideas and capitalism. Okay. You know. 
Anne, have you? Have you? Yeah, I mean, in a way, echo to us, it's a bit, we need to sort of find our Irish Richard Cobb. We need a, a sort of someone who, like him, who looked at the French Revolution and came out with the conclusion, revolution stops at the bedroom door. People just get on with their lives. They live their lives in, as they would, as, as best they can through difficult times. I mean, I think in a way we also need to think, and I think it's been hinted at by a number of, of people already, to try and see or see beyond the sense of our own exceptionalism. I think the more we see ourselves in a European context, in a broader context, the better. Because in a way, we, for all our emphasis on the lives lost and, and the extent of our wars and the wars amongst ourselves, we actually had quite small wars by any standard mm -hmm. of the time. We managed to get through them quite relatively quickly, not costing that much in the way of life, and that's not to, to sort of underestimate the extent of the loss of life. But when you look at what happened in places like Poland, in the, you know, mm -hmm. you the same death toll in Poland in a single weekend than you would have had with the entirety of the Irish Revolution, yeah. if you like. Yeah. We do need to have that kind of context. And in a way, ask ourselves, why, how did that happen in, in our case? Because it could have been an awful lot worse than it was, because we had all sorts of land issues in the background, all sorts of things that could have intensified it. But it's not as bad as it could have been. And I think in a way, we have to, we have to contextualise it in that way. So the, the more we see ourselves as, as actually as part of a much wider world, the better. Thanks, Anne. I think the last word should go to you, Ronan, on this topic. What's your view? Well, I mean, I think the answers you've had so far on this justify to the fact that I don't think we've anything to worry about, that there, there are research areas which I, I think the rising generation and future historians are, are obviously going to interrogate, and these are all going to be, I, I, I think, valuable intrinsically. However, I would uh, hope that that does not mean that what Tomás has called political events, major political events, that this becomes an excuse for saying, well, we've done that, we needn't do that anymore. Yeah. Uh, because I think a society is interested in big political events and ought to be mm -hmm. interested in big political events and has a right to expect from its historians a dispassionate approach to big political events. And in particular, the question that arises about I forget which of the other speakers said, you know, the celebratory aspect of 1916, obviously one doesn't celebrate the Great War in that kind of way. Well, I, I think the question that needs to be faced is, are we afraid to celebrate the fact that we became independent? Because that seems to me to be the bottom line. And it seems to me that's where a fair number of my colleagues, the direction in which they're heading. That's a super question to end this part of the discussion. I've asked you to think about questions. We have about 10 to maybe a little over 10, 12 minutes for questions. Who wants to get in first? Yeah, and don't be afraid to shout out loud. And if you can't be heard, I'll, I'll ask you, the, I'll repeat the question for you, okay? Yeah, yeah. That, that little dirty war, and it was a very dirty war of the participant myself, 
uh, that story hasn't been told. We're getting a lot of information from, uh, from the British, uh, you know, a certain amount of scripturalists, I suppose. But there's very little data, it seems to me, being produced on that very, very important phase of conflict. And my second question is, if it's not being done, and I won't mention the Boston College conflict, <laughs> do you think as historians, before these uh, older guards and, and army people, directors of intelligence and so on, before they uh, shuffle off towards uh, the graveyard, do you think it would be a worthwhile, I think it's a very, very compelling and essential exercise in this area. Thank you. Thank you. Katrina, do you think you can answer that question without mentioning Boston College? <laughs> Not a hope. I mean, it, it was an absolute calamity, and it was very badly handled. And we won't go into it because most of you will know uh, what surrounded it. But if there were a template for how not to do something like that, that presents it to you. Um, I agree very much with Tom Clonan that, that we need uh, um, an oral history of different participants in, in what went on. Um, I'm not sure if people in the north of Ireland are going to do something similar to the Boston College thing. I think everyone has been so badly damaged by that. It'll be a long time before we will see a concerted effort uh, organized in that kind of way to, to gather oral history about the, the period they call the Troubles. But we down here could certainly do with uh, a serious oral history from the guards and the defense forces. Um, and I would say not just on that, but I mean, uh, I know quite a number of members of, of the Irish Armed Forces. I think the Irish Army is bloody marvelous. And many of them have been to places like the Lebanon and Bosnia and Kosovo and have extraordinary stories to tell about that. They are great community builders. They're, they have only had positive effects in these places. And we need to know their stories. They're all made to retire far too early. Uh, you're losing the sort of expertise that they have. And I'm sure somebody, I mean, the Department of Defense is, by the way, funding fully the Military Service Pensions Files Project, which is the biggest archival project funded by the state for the decade of centenaries. So they, they are shining lights when it comes to putting their money where their mouth is. This would be something that perhaps, when we're all exhausted from the decade of centenaries, might be something we could start. But time is running out, people are dying. And maybe, Tom, you should do it. Set it up. Um, I always say that to people who have lovely suggestions. Yeah, if you think it's a good idea, why don't you do it? We'll help you. I've got into enough trouble already. Okay. Uh, any other members of the panel care to There is somebody this, yeah? doing yeah. something, I think, on the peacekeepers. Um, men called Eamon Coakley, a retired lieutenant colonel. Great. I think he's doing something on the peacekeepers. Yeah, he started it. Um, maybe it's a PhD, maybe it's a postdoctoral. I'm not sure, but... Um, yeah, There's a very amount of oral history going. Witness statements are taking place in various universities. I happen to know that tomorrow, for example, in UCD, there's a project that the people who served in Merrifield, and I'm not talking about senior people, mm -hmm. but the chef, the secretaries, they're giving witness. Okay. It's, the, it's, the, it's the 30th anniversary tomorrow mm -hmm. of uh, they're going to Merrifield setting up in Merrifield for the first time. So there is that kind of work going on. There are a fair number, and I've, I've read, I mean, I'm particularly interested in the Anglo-Irish agreement and British-Irish relations, and I've read a fair number of witness statements from seminars, some of them conducted them by the Union some of them conducted yeah. in UCD. Mm -hmm. So that is going on. David, a question. Very briefly, I've got the impression this pendulum is going to swing back before it gets to 1920. Somebody said, "Leave well enough alone." Do you think he's going to do that? Wow. Well, I think I think <laughs> we have to we have to confront it, but 
the signs are not good mm. because um, I have been very taken aback by part of the reaction to De Valera. When, when Brian Cowan launched my book, he made a very interesting speech in which he said he thought the time had come for all political parties to take an ecumenical, to adopt an ecumenical approach to the events in 1921-22. But judging by a lot of the reaction that De Valera has evinced, there are a fair number of people who are quite happy to stay in the trenches. Just as a small comment, I happen to pass through Ken Mayer quite often, and they publish lovely books and photographs from different years, reminiscences and so on. They never mention, there are no photographs, no mention at all of anything Anne Dolan will do it all on her own if nobody is there to help her. She's already done well, extraordinary work on this period, which is remarkable stuff. You've just been cued, Anne. Yeah, yeah. I think, in a way, it's, it's partly linked to how you do it as opposed to what you can do, because a lot of it is about what you're trying to achieve if you, if, and, and the tone with which you do it. Because, in a way, I think a lot of, certainly the Civil War books I you know, grew up reading, they came, you could tell very, very quickly, you opened the cover, you opened the front page one and there was a copy of the 1916 proclamation. You knew, you knew where you stood before you read the first page. So, you know, and a lot of it, I think, is, is about <coughs> bringing those methodologies from, if you like, the wider historiography of conflict, trauma studies, as Katrina suggests, bringing those kind of things to it and opening it up layer upon layer upon layer. And almost investigate the silences as much as the activity and, and that which mm. is said, but also that which is not said and why. And why can't, when can it begin to be said? I think that's when, you, that's when it starts to get interesting. Okay. Another question? Sean. Um, if I could, here I'll piggyback maybe on, on Roman's final point um, in terms of whether or not we are uh, afraid to celebrate our independence because um, I don't know if the panel actually answered that question. Um, <laughs> I think, you know, we, we look at our American cousins across the Atlantic and year in, year out on the 4th of July, fireworks and praise and all the rest of it. Um, to celebrate uh, the Declaration of, U of Independence of the U U.S. Independence. Um, indeed, my first question then is to, to, to steal Romans and say, are we, does the panel think we are afraid to celebrate our independence? Um, and if so, why is that the case? Um, is it that, you know, the very generalist, I suppose, approach that 1966 somehow led to the, the troubles in Northern Ireland in, in a very real way? Or is there something more to it? Is there something in the national psyche um, that would really like to yeah, I suppose we're on a, we might refine the question. Um, were you, were you, in fact, celebrating the uh, occasion of independence or the subsequent experience of independence? No, no. I, I mean, I, I, I would be as critical as many of the people I'm criticising about what happens when Ireland becomes independent and about how deeply in the throes and in the thrall of the Catholic Church it becomes, and of, of deeply, deeply conservative forces. Uh, and, and I'm as antipathetic to that aspect, those aspects, of what happens after independence. But there, there is nevertheless an issue, I think, as to whether or not uh, we are prepared to say, well, yes, it is a good thing that we achieved independence. And in particular, it's a good thing that we achieved full sovereign independence as quickly as we did. Because one of the consequences of that is that really after 37, 38, certainly after 45, when it's been reaffirmed by neutrality in World War II, sovereignty is no longer an issue. 
And it's only because sovereignty is no longer an issue and people no longer have any complexes and we're spared decades of corrosive, sterile debate about just what the British connection ought to be or ought not to be. That's all gone. It's finished. And it's because of that that the Irish people are prepared to vote overwhelmingly to say, well, sovereignty, that's fine, we have that, and we're prepared to see it diluted, and we're going to join Europe. Now, other responses from the panel? I, I think every so often, I mean, again, I was at, I'm getting a lot of mileage out of this conference I was at. <laughs> there, was, there, was, there was a panel on immigration in the 1950s, and one, one of the questioners at the end kept coming back, but yeah, so many people had to emigrate. This means this state was a failed political entity. And that, that's, that's a phrase you hear an awful lot of. And I'm not quite sure what it means, actually, really. And, you know, it's, I agree with Ronan. I think it's important that we did get our independence. I, I think that every so often we do go through a lot of breastbeating about it. And um, I remember Gay Burns' famous one was handing, handed back to the British and apologised for the mess that we made of it. And there were a lot of people. But that was kind of in the high, the, the, the early days of, of revisionism, you know, um, yeah, I, I think I think there are, there is an element of people who are afraid to celebrate our independence. I, I certainly think it, we should celebrate it, and we or I think it was a good thing that we're independent. But anyway, I think I do think there's an awful lot of comment that says we we failed as a state. Okay, yeah, quick comments, and then I'll just take one more question. Well, again, just for development, we didn't get our independence in 1916. We got it in 1922. I'm quite happy to celebrate 1922. I'm also I don't want to celebrate any of it. I, I would like us to remember that, that the state was born in violence and the people died. And that it's only countries that don't have experience of, of ongoing violence who think that that is not important. It is important. And it, and it does go to the issue that confronted the state and historians and everybody in this country for 30 years in the north of Ireland that we had to look what, at what the ideological foundation for this might be, what sort of crowns were handed on uh, theoretically, anyway, to the people who, who began and continued. At, at least Peer stopped after a week, I often say to people I meet from the provisional IRA. He gave up after a week because he, he didn't want any further um, civilian slaughter. But th this is a complicated business. Of course it's good that we have our independence. There's no doubt about that. Uh, and it is something that should be soberly celebrated, and we should be thankful for it. But we have to look at the context of it and what losses were incurred as a result. And as the guy says in, in, in Kerry, when you ask for instructions about where to go, if I wanted to go there, I wouldn't start from here. Yeah, I mean, if you start by taking over the main street of a city and, st and shooting people and then end with a vicious civil war, you really have to look at that and say, how come? Now, I also agree with Anne that it wasn't by any means as bad as it could have been, and there are all kinds of interesting comforts in it. But this is not a simple, straightforward celebration of our independence that we can judge, and nor is any states' uh, achievement of independence. Uh, you know, if we want fairy tales, we can have fairy tales. I don't fancy But the that. reason, just on that, the, yeah. the reason the state was born out of violence was because political, constitutional nationalism failed because British parliamentary democracy failed Ireland. After 30 years, we still get to, in 1914, the Great War begins, and we still haven't got a home rule parliament. And that was what was created the fertile soil for violence. Thanks. The last question comes suitably enough from the man at the back. Uh, make it short, and I'll ask for a quick panel response. I wanted to make a point about, you said something about how 22 might be commemorated, and I agree with you, 22 is the year we got our independence, 
and he's looking, he's established figures so far on casualties, on the number of ex-British servicemen who went into the army, the number from the, the number of people from Northern IRA divisions that came down south, as well as ex-IRA men from down south who joined uh, the army, people who basically uh, took part in the army and actually established the state, because one thing that's very clear is that the Irish army played a massive role in the establishment of the state. Yeah. And I think I'm just putting it out there, yeah. maybe that is what we're reluctant to commemorate the yeah. fact that for almost a year, possibly more, this was almost a military state uh, for that period, and that very, it was very difficult for the civil authorities to wrestle back that power about a year later. I was just wondering, do you think maybe that's the reason why we are reluctant to celebrate this period? One response only. Anyone want to take this? No. I mean, in ways, the... Okay, there, there, there are difficulties with the army mutiny, I think, or, or whether we can call it a mutiny or not in, in 24. I mean, in some respects, the, the state gets the, the control of the army pretty quickly. You know, you have a you have very quick return to civilian government in the state compared to other parts of Europe. Mm. This is one of the most stable democracies in Europe exactly. in the, 19, in the exactly. 1920s and into the 30s. We have to remember that. And I think, in a way, mm. it's back to Sean's question. This fear about celebrating independence because it's, it's framed so much in that idea of a failed state. It's back to my earlier point, we need to look at this state in that post-independence period, in the context of a wider Europe, because a lot of Europe isn't doing too well in that period yeah. either. Exactly. And I think that we've, we're too fond of the Frank McCourt interpretation of Irish yes, history, absolutely. that sense of we've the worst of everything. Yeah. We actually don't. And I think in a way, if, if we stop and say that, what does that leave us with? And I think some of us are kind of frightened of that as opposed to celebrating that in what, what a wonderful way of showing that history is alive, exciting and kicking in Trinity College. And what a pity the professor isn't here to say that when we come knocking on the door. <laughs> for the next appointment. Um, but the provost has left because uh, the book has to be launched, and the Chief Justice is already in waiting, and there is, as I said, lots of cordiality about over there. So find your way, and if you don't know how to get there, we have people here to show you how to get there. But get there soon.